0: so we have been in this series in the book of galatians for the last uh, 17 weeks actually and what we've seen is an amazing message of the gospel of jesus christ and how that goes out and how so many people are changed because of it and yet in the midst of that how much opposition there is the simple and pure message of following jesus christ you know as churches as christians We're we're not that great at keeping it pure and simple. We complicate it. uh, we, We make it more difficult than it should. We add rule upon rule to it. Uh, and we do it because of this, uh, really this evil inside of all of us. I'll be frank. It's called Pride. Taking a group of young men, discipling a group of young men uh, for the next couple of years. They're in 10th grade right now. We went through a book uh, called Seven Men and the Secrets of, Our Gra- of Their Greatness. Eric Metaxas. It's a great book. I'd encourage you to read it. They've, he's got one called Seven Women as well. And it's just these journeys of people of faith throughout the seasons who have done great things for God. Uh, we took a look at Wilberforce. uh in- And, you know, his tireless uh, drive to abolish slavery in the British Empire. We've taken a look at George Washington and not just the president, George Washington, but the man of faith, George Washington. Eric Little, the Olympian, the chariots of fire guy. uh, But the guy that after that went to China to be a missionary, gave his life there for Christ. Uh, People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who um, pastored in the midst of Nazi Germany and fought tirelessly for the pure and simple message of Jesus who gave his life for that. Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier there in sports and his relentless faith in Jesus and how that propelled him to do such a thing. And um, so we've been on this journey to see all these things because I think we need examples of faith for us. And the last one we just finished this last week was Chuck Colson. Now, Chuck Colson was in the Watergate scandal. He was one of Nixon's hatchet men, not a nice guy at all. Ruth Bloodthirsty, Machiavellian politics, you know, to the extreme. And what then happened was it all broke and. Uh Chuck Colson began to break. He came to faith in Christ. And because of that, prison fellowship was started. Because of prison fellowship, we started Light My Way. So the chain of events has been huge in my heart. Uh, Born Again, Chuck's book, was huge for my life when I was a brand new believer in Christ. But there is this moment in Metaxas when he's writing about Chuck Colson where it talks about how he's breaking and coming to faith in Christ. But he has to deal with his pride. And uh, it just so happens that somebody had given him a copy of Mirror Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and it dealt with that issue and it was instrumental. And so I was reading that. I jumped, grabbed my old copy of mere Christianity, start reading through that again. And I want to highlight a, a paragraph for you that I think is the core of all of our problems. And so he says this, Lewis says this pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Only out of having more of it than the next man. That's, pretty, that's a great take. It's Lewis, but I love it. Where it's not this, that we are boasting about ourselves. We're boasting about how much better we are than anybody else. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or clever or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud the pleasure of being above the rest. I love that. That is so phenomenal. When you think about it in your own heart, why are we proud people? My boys, uh, 12, 14, 16, we've walked through a journey with them, you know, kind of working through adolescence. They're no longer children, per se. They're in that adolescence stage. And I've spent time with them talking about it. My wife has as well We on journeys, been listening to things and talking about the awkwardness of adolescence and Uh, Everybody has it. Everybody experiences it. You go through this inferiority complex, this feeling of worthlessness. And that's just natural. The the change of the body and everything, the preparation for the ability to have children. There's just this feeling of this cavern and, and you're falling in it. And so what you naturally want to do is, uh, well, you want to match up. You want to have some friends. You want to feel okay. So then you conform. So infor- inferiority takes you to conformity. And conformity is when you'll match any group. You'll become, you know, a jock. You'll become a prep. You'll become, uh, you know, a rock star. You'll become, you know, a skater. You'll become a loner. You'll become whatever. Right? Goth. It doesn't matter. You'll become something else just to fit in, just to feel like somebody else loves you. And then you will use that to compare yourself to others. And whether it's beauty whether it's your athletic ability or lack thereof or your money or lack thereof. We measure the status of the world and what we live in by those things. And if we can have a little more, especially a little more than someone else, we'll feel okay. And we are so misunderstood when it comes to what's really important in life. We we think that's what matters, but it's not. And we at America, in America, and our culture, and Christianity, we, we buy into this lie that if we have all these things, we have value and worth. My friends, you are made in the image of God. And no matter how marred that has become because of sin, how disfigured it's become because of the pain of our lives, our own actions, others against us, we are still filled with intrinsic value, no matter what our academic abilities are no matter what our beauty on the scale is no matter what our racial inequality is no matter what uh, what we think about when it comes to money and what's important and what we can buy or not buy the fact is we are dearly loved by God but there's something sick inside of us a brokenness inside of us that stems from well not just the garden it stems from the evil one himself Lucifer Satan when he because of pride Hovering around the throne of God created to not just worship God, but to protect, defend, proclaim this holiness of God that he would say nonstop. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is to is to come. These statements about the greatness of God. And there was a moment when he looked at that throne and said, I want that. I want to be better than I want to be more important than I want to be worshipped more than I want that. And pride from that moment on has trickled into our life, has trickled into our heart. And we struggle with that. And if we could just get the fact that God just loves us, he's crazy about us and he loves us dearly. And yes, we've broken. Yes, we've fallen. Yes, we've extended ourselves away from God. We've all done that. But he still loves us and wants to draw us to himself through Jesus Christ. If we could get that, but we remain in our brokenness so many times so we can be more clever, more proud, richer, wiser. When I was talking with my sons about this a number of years ago, I took him to a passage. that really helped me in my teenage years. In Jeremiah chapter nine, uh, the prophet says, this is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power, or the rich boast in their riches. That's what we do, right? We boast about all that. I mean, you don't believe it? Check out, you know, important people's Twitter or Facebook feed or Instagram or Snapchat or YouTube channels. We all want more subscribers. We want more likes. We want more whatever, right? We want that. Again, if you don't believe that, follow the NBA right now with the playoffs, right? You you know, NFL, people are always boasting about their greatness, But don't boast about those things. Those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me. And that's a relational word, that they would have an intimate relationship with this God of the universe, that they know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth, and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is so clear for you and me that we shouldn't boast in the way the world boasts. We shouldn't think that, hey, if we have this, then we'll be more important. We'll feel better. I know in our hearts we do it. What we should figure out is how do we boast in God? Uh, Like on the wall there, justice. How do we boast about the justice of God or the mercy of God? How do we walk in humility, boasting about our great God, being more excited about our great God than a football game, right? Or a basketball game or whatever we're excited about, right? That we would be so excited to say, hey, I don't have anything to boast about except Jesus. Christ and I want to boast about him. Now I bring all this up because that's exactly how Paul ends his letter to the Galatian believers. In fact, chapter 6 if you want to turn there, we wrap it all up today verses 11 to 18 and this is what we're going to see. Now as you're turning there, look, you know, just in case you walked into the end of the movie, it's over today and I want to tell you this Paul has gone around, he's preached, he's shared the message of Jesus to Jews and Gentiles alike. And he shared this message about faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the one called by God, anointed by God, and and people believe in it. And then he plants the church and he goes to the next area. Then he leaves that region. And all of a sudden, this insidious group of Jewish believers come in and they begin to sow a lie and the lie is it's not just Jesus alone it's Jesus plus our rules which is Moses and the law we had to do all these things now you have to do them too and so Paul writes about this and he writes this wonderful letter it's it's a pretty strong letter saying never forget it's Jesus Plus nothing equals everything. If you add anything to Jesus and churches do it, man, they still do it today. They add, you know, clothing styles or hairstyles or makeup or no makeup or jewelry or whatever or religious things. We do this. It's crazy. Power structure upon power structure so that we can feel important and, and we just crush people. This is what Paul says in verse 11. I love this. Notice what large letters I use as I write these closing words in my own handwriting. By the way, um... When somebody does this on Twitter, they're shouting at you, right? It's just don't do that. If you write a long email in all caps, people like, I can't read it. Hello. What are you shouting at? Right? He's shouting. He really is. He's trying to get our attention. Uh, Not all the translations have it in all caps, but there are a couple understandings of what he might be doing or why he's doing it. One, it could just be that Paul was speaking the letter to a secretary And so uh, a man or woman, they were writing the words out as Paul would say them. But now Paul wants it to be completed with his own handwriting. He grabs the pen, as it were, and he writes this last part. He wants them to know, hey, authentication done. I, Paul, I'm signing this. I'm given the last part. Another understanding that scholars think is it could be, uh, this whole idea of Paul having a problem with his eyes and eyesight. If you take a look in Galatians, he says, when I came to you, it's kind of hideous. There was a struggle. And, and if man, you love me so much, you would have pulled out your eyes and given them to me, which some people go, that's kind of a weird thing. Maybe he had eye problems an infection, some kind of blindness. And so he's writing it with his own hand in large letters. And then others would say, no, he's using unseals these large caps. He's really trying to make the final point. And the final point is in the next couple paragraphs. So either way, what Paul is saying is you got to hear me. This is the end of everything. And he's going to contrast. He says, those who are trying to force you to be circumcised want to look good to others. Kind of an odd thing to talk about in church. But that was the core issue for a Jewish person. Uh, follower of the law of Moses to be born and raised in that Jewish system. You had all these rules and regulations about days and about certain times and about certain seasons and festivals, and you obeyed the laws, the 613 laws of Moses. By that time, there were thousands of additional laws to explain the laws and law after law. And what, what bottom line is, is that they were filled with this And there were laws about interacting with foreigners, but the big law, not just the kosher eating food, but the big law was all males have to be circumcised as infants. And if you become a Jewish convert as an adult, you're baptized into that and you have to be circumcised. Well, now these believers in Jesus who were formerly believers in Moses are taking both and saying, you have to be circumcised. And Paul is saying, it's not true. So this is what they're boasting about, what they're forcing. He says, they don't want to, be persecuted for teaching that the cross of christ alone can save and even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves in other words they're hypocrites they just want this they only want you to be circumcised so that they could have another notch on their belt right they can have another i ticked another one i got another one now i can boast about that they want to boast about it and claim you as their disciple they don't care about you they care about themselves. They don't love you. They love themselves. They don't walk in humility. They walk in pride. They All they want to do is go around boasting that they have more people than Paul does. And, you know, anytime we do that in our lives, anytime we boast about... Our achievements and I understand there's there's a good kind of pride. I'm proud of my sons. You know, I really am proud of my sons. Uh, My sons aren't perfect. You know, I'm I'm proud of, of church. I'm proud of ministry. I love seeing SEMA, the things that are going on there I'm proud. I'm proud. But this is the kind of pride that is deep in our hearts that says, I want more than I need more than and I want you to know I have more than this is what they were going through. Now, what Paul says is these people want to boast about their disciples and in contrast, look what Paul says. It's so amazing. As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a couple of thoughts in here. Uh, different translations will say it differently because there's really no way to translate it into English uh, or our teachers and grammarians would have heart attacks. Because what Paul is literally saying is. May it never, ever, ever under any circumstance be God forbid that I would even be God forbid I'd even begin to talk like that. I just don't even want to be close in proximity to this thought. Okay. That was a nice little throwing out of words. I I don't want anybody to think this. May I never, ever, 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 ever boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's stop and think about that for a minute. I think that's kind of odd to be honest. He says, may we never boast in anything but the cross. The cross? What is the cross? Well, we have crosses up here and we, we light them up. And we have a big cross outside there with a little sunburst afterward. Right out on the fringes of it. And, you know, I was, saw a gal had a cross through the day. Went around a necklace. Cross earrings. Cross tattoos. You know, crosses on uh, bumper stickers. Things like that. Um, we, we have a lot of, you know, crosses. Um, but what is the cross? Is it a piece of jewelry? Is the cross an ornament? Uh, Is it a symbol? What is the cross? Well, at the time that Paul writes and the time that Jesus dies on the cross, the cross is not something to boast about. Because the cross is not about victory. The cross is about defeat. The cross isn't that you won. The cross is you lost. The cross isn't that you have power. It's that somebody else pushed their power down on you and you've been defeated. The cross is not something we wave victoriously. The cross is something we hide in shame. Because to die on a cross is not something you celebrate. When Jesus died on the cross, it was a shameful, unbelievably painful thing. Only criminals and the worst of all criminals died on the cross. Later on, when the church began to grow and explode, the Roman emperors, they would then crucify believers... Throw tar on them and burn them alive to light them on fire on crosses to line the roads of Rome. Why? Because they wanted everybody to know what a shameful thing it was to believe in this cult called Christianity. And the cross wasn't anything to boast about. The cross was something to be ashamed of because it was a torturing instrument. It was an instrument of persecution and death. I mean, nobody hangs a guillotine around their neck, right? Unless they, you know. Listen to certain kind of music and we're black, you know, have spikes in their head, you know, seriously. Nobody goes around and goes, oh, I can't. I want to show you the gas chamber. Really? Nobody says, hey, I want to boast in the lethal injection. I want to boast in the firing squad. See, those are shameful ways to die. Those indicate that you have been found guilty and you have now reached the end and you are finally punished in a glorious, grandiose way to illustrate to everybody that you have been defeated and somebody else has won. And yet Paul says that instrument of torture and shame, the Bible says, that's what I want to boast about. Now, again, if you. Just get out of your Christian realm of, yeah, I'll boast about Christ or whatever, boast about the cross. Think about it. The world today, those that are intellectual and honest with this, they look at the cross and they're deeply offended by the cross. Because what you're telling me is that I am a broken person, that I'm a sinful person at my core, that I cannot work my way out. That I cannot pull myself up by my bootstraps and I cannot make it on my own. That's offensive. Because I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. And you are telling me that I have to depend on somebody else that would die for me. What kind of God would crucify his son? A bloodthirsty death like that. I don't want that kind of God, right? That's an offense. The shame of the cross, if people are honest, is, is true. It's actually true. The shame of the cross. And yet, that's the whole point, my friends. Is that we could never do it on our own. We could never power through this. We could never make it. We could never be good enough, rich enough, beautiful enough. Wealthy enough, famous enough, and we can never influence God by our righteous deeds. We can only receive what Jesus has done for us. And it is a shameful thing. In fact, Paul said it in Galatians, as the Old Testament says, cursed is anyone who's hung in such a manner, right? And Paul goes and says, that's what I want to boast about. If I'm known for anything, it's not about the rules. It's a right relationship with God that only comes through Jesus. Uh, Because of this. And I'm boasting the cross. My interest in this world has been crucified. I don't care anymore about the world. This world's interest in me has also died. They don't care about me. It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. When I come back from uh, the Turkey and Greece trip, I'll have a couple messages just on that idea of being transformed or as Paul writes it in Romans to be conformed to the image of Christ. What does it mean to to have that step of, you know, continual growth in relationship to Jesus? That's what matters. We're growing in this relationship with God into this new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. You know, when we started this series a couple weeks into it. I just shared it this way. Don't think of the gospel as something that starts the Christian faith and then you move on to some other things. The gospel is the Christian faith. Don't think of the cross as something that you pray a prayer and go, I I believe what Jesus did on the cross. Now I'm done. Now I'm going on to deeper things. Uh, The gospel, the cross, the message that Paul has preached. It's not the ABCs. Well, it is, but it's the A, B, C, D, E, F, all the way to Z. It's not just the one, two, threes. It's everything in between. The gospel message. I said this. You need to get up every day. I need to get up every day and preach the gospel to myself. I need to remind myself of the cross, not as an ornament or symbol of, you know, just this wonderful thing of the fact that it's my death he died. And I should have gone to that cross. I should have spilt my own blood. I should have been tortured. The whips that he received should have been mine. The the marks on his back should have been mine. The scoffing and the shame and the beard that was pulled out and the spit upon him. The crown of thorns pressed upon him. The blood that poured out. That should be my death. And worse, right? For all eternity. But because of that, Jesus died for me. And now I believe it. And the only thing I want to take pride in and boast about is my weakness and my own inability to save myself. Except that Jesus comes in and does it for me. And that's what I want to boast about. And that is the message. We need to wake up every day. We're going to get proud. We're going to create our own rules and create, you know, so many lists of things that we feel good because people are obeying our list and our way and our style and our this and that. Man, may we never boast in anything but the cross, the shame and the humility of the fact that you and I could not make it on our own. But thanks be to God who gave us Jesus, who died for us. And then he wraps it up with these final words. From now on, don't let anyone trouble me with these things. I am done posting about this on Facebook is what he just said there. I am done with the argument. No more. I'm going to delete the whole post. Okay. All right. For I bear on my body. Wow, this is powerful. Um, I bear on my body the scars that show I belong to Christ. I don't know how to translate that into your life. Because I have some scars, but they're from my own stupidity in life. I have some wounds, but that's because of my own sinful nature. But Paul says, hey, you know, if you really want to get down to it, um, I've suffered. I've bled. I've been shipwrecked. You read the story later on. Oh, my goodness, the things that happened to his life for the cross of Christ. And he dies for it. He's beheaded, history tells us, under Nero. Nero. For following Jesus Christ. So let's just not argue about things anymore. He says, finally, dear brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And we wrap up the message. Now, if you were with us in the series through Matthew, which was 70 weeks, we did that a couple years ago. We finished it with the Bible projects video of the book of Matthew. Beautiful. I love what those men and women do down in Portland with these uh, animations. And they've got a lot of other things other than books of the Bible, but they've gotten the whole Bible there. And so I pulled the one down on Galatians and we're going to show it for the next nine minutes. This is when you see the Marvel movie at the Infinity War at the very end. And then you wait around through the credits, which are almost two hours long, as long as the movie. And then finally, the last scene goes on, which I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it's cool. Wait for it. Um, this is the post-credit scene. So if you just walked in the theater, all you need to know is the next nine minutes. Let's watch it together.
1: Paul's letter to the Galatians. It was written to a number of churches in the region of Galatia, where Paul had traveled on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the stories in the book of Acts. He wrote this important letter from a place of deep passion and frustration. Here's the backstory. Christianity began as a Jewish messianic movement in Jerusalem, but its message was for all humanity, and so it quickly spread beyond Israel. By Paul's time as a missionary, there were as many non-Jews as there were Jewish people in the Jesus movement, and this sparked a huge debate that we know about from the book of Acts chapter 15. Historically, the covenant people of God were focused in one ethnic group, Israel, and they were set apart by the practices commanded in the Torah, like circumcision of males, eating kosher, observing the Sabbath. And there were many Jewish Christians who believed that for all of these non-Jews to truly become a part of God's family, they needed to obey the laws of the Torah. And so some of these Jewish Christians ended up coming to the Galatian churches. They were undermining Paul and demanding circumcision of all these male non-Jewish Christians. And so many of them were. And when Paul found out, he was brokenhearted and angry. And this letter is the result. He first challenges the Galatians with his summary of the gospel message about the crucified Messiah. He then argues that this gospel is what creates the new multi-ethnic family of Jesus and Abraham. And then he shows how this gospel is what truly transforms people by the presence and power of the Spirit. He opens by expressing his bewilderment that the Galatians have embraced a different gospel. It's the one promoted by these Christians who badmouth Paul and demand circumcision. So Paul first defends the authenticity of his message and authority as an apostle. He was commissioned by the risen Jesus himself to go to the non-Jewish world. Remember the story from the book of Acts. Paul says it was only later that he went to Jerusalem to consult the other apostles like Peter or James. And when he told them he wasn't requiring non-Jewish Christians to be circumcised or eat kosher, they were in full support. But this tension ran deeper. Peter had come to Antioch to visit and see all of these non-Jewish Christians, and he was eating and mingling with them. But when some of this Jerusalem opposition group showed up in Antioch, Peter caved under their pressure. He stopped eating with these uncircumcised Christians, and he was avoiding them. And so Paul confronted and accused Peter of hypocrisy, of not staying true to the gospel. For Paul, demanding these new Christians to become circumcised and Torah observant, it's wrong-headed for all kinds of reasons. First of all, because it's a betrayal of the gospel. Or in his words, people are not justified by the works of the Torah, but rather by the faith of Jesus the Messiah. And we have faith in the Messiah Jesus. To be justified, or literally to be declared righteous, it's a rich Old Testament term for Paul. It's when God declares that someone is in a right relationship with him. They're forgiven, they're given a place in God's family, and they are being transformed by God's grace. And it's Paul's conviction that no one can be justified by observing the commands of the Torah, but only by the faith of Jesus. This is a dense phrase, and it could refer to Jesus' own faithfulness in living and dying on our behalf, or it could refer to our own trust and devotion to Jesus. Either way, the point is clear. People are justified only through trusting in what God did for them through Jesus, not by what they do for themselves. At the heart of Paul's gospel is this claim, that when people trust in the Messiah Jesus, what's true of him becomes true of them. His life, death, and resurrection become theirs. Or in his words, I've been crucified with the Messiah, and it's not I who come back to life, it's the Messiah living in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the reason anyone can say that they are right with God or belong to Jesus' covenant family, it's not because they obeyed the laws of the Torah. It's only because of what Jesus did for them that they could never do for themselves now this profound understanding of what jesus accomplished it has huge implications for who can now be included in god's covenant family and for what it means to live as a member of that family so paul first turns to the stories about abraham in genesis how he was justified or declared righteous before god by simply having faith by trusting in god's promise that one day All nations would find God's blessing through him and his offspring. God's purpose was always to have one large multi-ethnic family of people who relate to him on the basis of faith, not on the laws of the Torah. But that raises an important question. Why did God give the laws of the Torah to Israel then? Here Paul offers a very brief and dense explanation that he will later fill out in his letter to the Romans. He observes that the laws of the Torah were given to Israel at Mount Sinai long after God's promise to Abraham. And if you read the Torah carefully, he says, you'll see that God always intended the laws to be a temporary measure. He says the laws had both a negative and a positive role. Negatively, the laws acted like a magnifying glass on Israel's sin. They exposed how Israel shared in the sinful human condition, constantly rebelling against God's law. And so the law, which is good, ended up pronouncing Israel guilty and all humanity with them. Or in his words, the laws imprisoned everyone under the power of sin. But the laws also had a positive role. They acted like a strict school teacher that kept Israel in line until the coming of the promised offspring of Abraham, the Messiah. And once the Messiah came, he fulfilled the purpose of the laws on Israel's behalf. Jesus was the faithful Israelite who truly loved God and neighbor. And as Israel's king, he died to take the curse and consequence of Israel's failure into himself and bring redemption. And so now through Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, God's blessing can come to all people, regardless of their ethnicity, social status, or gender. For Paul, requiring Torah observance from non-Jewish Christians, it makes no sense. It's acting as if Jesus didn't fulfill God's promise or deal with our sins. It neglects the new freedom gained for us through Jesus and the gift of the Spirit, and it limits God's promise and blessing to one ethnic family. But, Paul's opponents might argue, the laws of the Torah, they're a proven guide to living according to God's will. How will non-Jewish Christians learn this? Paul responds in chapters 5 and 6 by describing how Jesus' transforming presence through the Spirit is the key. The laws of the Torah are good. They're wise, Paul says. In fact, they can all be summarized, as Jesus did, in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. But the laws, good as they are, they did not give Israel the power to obey them. In contrast, the good news is that Jesus did fulfill the laws on our behalf, and now he lives in us through the Spirit, making his people into new humans who fulfill the law by loving others. So Paul goes on to contrast this old and new humanity. The habits of the old humanity are obvious. These are behaviors that dehumanize people, they destroy relationships and whole communities. And while the laws of the Torah prohibited these behaviors, Jesus actually put them to death on the cross. So when a person trusts in Jesus and lives in dependence on the Spirit, his life becomes theirs and produces what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. This is Jesus' way of life that he wants to reproduce in his family so that they become people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But this fruit isn't automatic, Paul says. It requires cultivation, just like real fruit. Or in his words, if we live by the Spirit, we have to keep in step with the Spirit. This requires intentionality. We have to learn how to prune off our old habits and cultivate new ones. And as we do so, we find ourselves carried along by the Spirit as Jesus reshapes our minds and hearts and makes us into people who love God and others. And in this way, Jesus' people fulfill what Paul calls the Torah of the Messiah. In the end, Paul concludes, this requirement for Christians to become Torah observant or be circumcised, it's an adventure in missing the point. What really matters is God's new creation, this new multi-ethnic family of the Messiah, people full of faith in Jesus who are learning to love God and others in the power of the Spirit. And that's what the letter to the Galatians
0: is all about. Love that stuff. That's great. You can go find them. On thebibleproject.com, or go to YouTube and look for that. They have got all the books of the of the Bible, plus a lot of themes, and it's great. And uh, they're starting to translate them into Spanish, which is really cool. Uh, and so they're they're working on that. They're just down in Portland here, and so great, great uh, friends. Uh, do me a favor. I want you to close your eyes, and I'm not going to pray, but I want you to have a, a vivid imagination right now. I want you to close your eyes and think, think this, think about uh, your life. And let's imagine that you've committed such heinous crimes that you've been found out, you have been tried, you've been convicted, you've been sentenced, you've been put in jail, you've been finally sent to prison, you're serving for years, you're in a cell, it's dark, it's dank, uh, the doors are barred shut, and one day you hear the jailer come down the hallway with the chain, the key, the hope just rattling in your ear that maybe he or she's coming for you and as they reach for those keys they put it in the cylinder there in your lock and then they turn the tumbler and you hear all of that and the lock is opened, the door is opened and they open it up and say you're free and you jump up and you just rush out to that hallway in that long hallway you look left and right and there are just cells lined up of people imprisoned for their their crimes, their brokenness, their sin. And then a fearful moment happens to you. That your whole life has been lived under rules. And you don't know what freedom is going to be like. And so maybe you should just go back in the cell. And you sit down and you stare at the open door. Now, my friends, how ridiculous would that be, right? But that's what we do when we take the freedom that Jesus has granted us. The salvation of the cross. And then we just go back to law. We just go back to rule. We just go back to regulations. We forget the freedom that God has given us. We are to run free. We're to be dancing in the field of forgiveness. We're to be celebrating with our Heavenly Father and the believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet if we go back to bondage, we are destroying the work that Christ has given to us. I pray that you and myself and our church would never go to bondage would never go to legalism, would never go to religious rules, would always stay in the freedom of Jesus Christ. And that in that freedom, we would stay free and live free and demonstrate true freedom in Christ to the world. Father, we thank you for this. You've given your son. He's given his life for this. You've given your spirit so that we could live in this and celebrate this. Father, if there's any bondage, if there's any brokenness, if there's any religiosity or legalism, may we come to you today, confess it, and run from that and run straight into the arms of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.